That's the extent of my technology, a little green lights on. <laughs> All right. We'll take your Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 will be in verse 21. The Friday before the crucifixion, well, the Friday before the resurrection, which was the Friday of crucifixion, we know that as Good Friday. That's kind of an interesting term. Uh, for that Friday, it is Good Friday for us, and we'll look at that this morning for just a few minutes. But I want you to think about what took place on that Friday um, from a literal sense, and then we'll talk about it spiritually. It is the spiritual part of what took place on that Friday uh, before the resurrection that is the good part for us. The actual events that took place were anything but good. Jesus was arrested. Uh, for crimes and sins that were not his. He was uh, subjected to three trials throughout the night, which was illegal. The Jews were not allowed by the law of God to have trials at night. They had to be during the day. And so Jesus was subjected to two um, Jewish hearings and then the Roman hearing the next morning before Pilate. So he was unjustly tried after being unjustly accused. So he was innocent from the beginning. Um, then he was declared innocent by Pilate. Pilate came forward and said, I, I find no fault in this man. I find no justification to the accusations that you have brought against him. He's not an insurrectionist against Rome, and he's not guilty. And yet he was condemned to die. So there's an injustice in itself. He was declared to be innocent, but Pilate condemned him to die anyway. And then the process of the death that he was condemned to suffer was one of the most heinous. He was uh, beaten by the soldiers and humiliated. Um, you know, the crown of thorns smashed down on his head. Uh, they pulled out his beard. They slapped him, they hit him, they beat him up. He was flogged. They spit in his face, uh, blasphemed him, said, if you're God, prophesy who struck you. So he suffered incredible physical abuse. In fact, when Pilate saw him after he was beaten, he said, behold, the man. And I believe he was saying uh, an exclamation, behold, uh, what he looks like, because he was beaten beyond really human recognition. So abused was he, he physically that he couldn't carry his cross all the way to Calvary. Of course, this, they, the soldiers uh, forced someone to help him. Um, through all of that, he goes to the cross, and then they nailed him to the cross with iron spikes, hung him up there. And then Jesus, uh, as was sung, willingly, they took what he gave because Jesus said, no one takes my life, I give it, I lay it down, and I'll take it up again. So he dismissed his spirit. Jesus died as no one has ever died before. He chose the moment he would die, and he dismissed his spirit. And then to make sure he was dead, they stabbed him in the side with, with a spear uh, to make sure he was dead. And then they took him down and put him in the tomb. We call that Good Friday. Uh, doesn't sound very good, does it? Well, I, what I want you to think about this morning is the spiritual part of that was good for us, and that's why we call it Good Friday. In fact, I want you to, I want you to, I know you pay attention. Uh, this is a studious church, if I could use that term. People love to study the Bible here. 
Uh, you probably wouldn't come here if it wasn't for that because we certainly don't entertain or do the song and dance. So, uh, but I want you to really pay attention this morning to the spiritual aspect of this. And I want us to look at three things here in Romans that Paul talks about that are particularly applicable to that Good Friday, to what Jesus did. Now, he did a lot on that Friday spiritually for us, but it's real, really encompassed in three things. And I want to look at those very quickly this morning. Number one, when Jesus died on the cross, on that Good Friday, he brought to us righteousness that we don't have. He brought the righteousness that we need to be uh, restored to a right relationship with God. Secondly, he not only brought righteousness, but he brought justification, uh, which is a legal declaration of innocence. And then he brought probably the most important thing, redemption, uh, the payment of sin. And so it was Good Friday for us in particular. So think about those three things. And first, let's begin with righteousness. Look at verses 21 and 22 of Romans chapter 3. This passage is probably very familiar to you. Uh, if you know the Romans road, there's a verse in here that you use all the time. But I want to really look at it from the perspective of that Good Friday. Verse 21 of Romans 3 says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. So we're told right away, Paul says here, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. What that means is Jesus brought to us the righteousness that we need that we could not earn by the law. The law could not provide that, keeping the law, good works, religious good works. None of those things will bring us righteousness. Jesus brought it. Now, perhaps we were to define what righteousness is. I think when we say righteousness, you have a perception in your mind of what righteousness looks like. But let me give you a, a little clearer, exact definition of it. Righteousness is inclusive. Now listen very carefully. Righteousness is inclusive of all that God demands and approves. Everything that God demands, everything that's, that God says we ought to be and we ought not to be, all of God's commands, all of God's law. Listen, God's law is a reflection of his righteousness, of his holiness. And so when we say righteousness, it is inclusive of everything God demands of us, of everything God approves in us. Righteousness is equivalent to perfect holiness. And perfect holiness is equivalent to sinlessness. None of us have that. None of us could be restored to a relationship with God without this righteousness. Do you understand this? No one will ever get into heaven without the righteousness of God on them. No one can be in the presence of God without his righteousness on them. So when we say, when we read here, and Paul says that this righteousness of God is brought to us by Jesus Christ, that's a big deal. That Jesus would leave heaven and come here and die on the cross and bring us righteousness. Not only did he bring it, but he demonstrated it. You understand that in his incarnation, Jesus was God and man at the same time. He took on humanity and lived a sinless life to show us what God's righteousness looks like in human form. And then he went to the cross and died. Now, when we come to Christ by faith, which Paul said right here, this righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. When we come to God and we confess our sin and we put our faith in Jesus and we ask him to save us, Jesus imparts to us 
that righteousness that we need. In other words, he puts it on our account so that when God the Father sees us in Christ, how does he see us? He sees us as righteous as Jesus. Not because we earned it, not because we are righteous. In fact, when God sees us outside of Christ, we're just wicked and reprehensible. But in Jesus, when we get saved, his righteousness is applied to us, which is required to have fellowship with God. So one of the most important things Jesus brought to us on that Good Friday by dying for us on the cross and paying for our sin is he brought us a righteousness that qualifies us to have fellowship with God the Father because Jesus is our high priest. He's the one who reconciles us to the Father. He's the one who who presents us to the Father, and in Christ we have his righteousness. Now let's talk about how this transaction takes place. Because Jesus died on the cross, and because he brought us his righteousness, because he's God, how do we get it? How does it become ours? You say, well, if that righteousness is what we need to be restored to God, I want it. Well, you can have it. You can have it. Those who are watching along, you can have it, but it's by faith in Jesus Christ. You have to come to Jesus and you have to have faith in him. You have to put your faith in him. You have to ask him to forgive your sin and then he will and he'll place on you his righteousness. Now, does any old faith work? What kind of faith are we talking about here? Are we talking about faith that says, oh, well, you know, I believe there's a God and, and, I, and I believe God's good and, you know, and I believe Jesus came. Is that going to save you? No, it won't. Does, does saying, well, you know, I'm a Christian and I have faith in God and, uh, you know, I take the Christian title and I read my Bible and, uh, and I'm a pretty good person. Is that going to save you? No, it's not. It's not. The Bible says that faith, faith is that thing that you personally put in Jesus Christ. It's a personal thing. It's not just a general knowledge. It's just not a knowledge about God. And listen, James chapter 2, verse 19, listen to what James said. You believe that there is one God and you do well. Good for you, James would say. Good for you, you believe there's a God. But then he goes on to say, even the demons believe and they're afraid. So James is saying that kind of faith will save you. The demons have faith, not saving faith. If, if a demon was here today and talked to you, number one, you'd be scared. But if it was, and you would say, do you believe there's a God? He'd say, oh yeah, I don't just believe it, I know it. I know it, and I know the judgment's coming. But he ain't saved. So what kind of faith then Beyond just knowing, beyond just understanding. See, you could assent to the facts today. Online here, you could say, well, Pastor, I believe what you're saying about Jesus on Good Friday and how he died and he went to the cross. And you could believe all the facts and not be saved. Saving faith has two important components. Are you ready? Listen very carefully. It's beyond religion. It's beyond denomination. Sherry and I were talking this week. The largest church in the world is in China right now. You say, well, they're not even allowed to meet. Exactly. Exactly. You can't squish God's church, okay? The more you squeeze it, the bigger it gets, okay? And where there's persecution, the church usually grows like crazy. Why is the church not growing in the United States? Because it's too easy. And we got too much stuff and we're too comfortable. But in China, it'll cost you your life. You'll get put in prison. And the church is huge there. Gospel's spreading all over the place. People getting saved. What kind of faith are those people exercising? What kind of faith is, is bringing them to Jesus Christ? What kind of faith causes a person to be willing to lose everything in life for Jesus? Two things very quickly. Saving faith is a willing faith. It is, it is a, a willingness to receive what God's offering. Not just know about it. Not just assent to it. 
not just have an academic understanding of it, but to say, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross and I want it. I want it. It's a, it's a receiving faith. It's a willingness to surrender all of me for him. It's a willingness to do what God said. That's faith. That's saving faith. Not a mental assent to it. You want the righteousness that Jesus came to give us? You have to be willing to receive it. Not a denomination, not a religion, not a Christian thing. It's a willingness to surrender myself for him and say, God, I want what you are offering, and I want it. I need it. Man, that's, you know what, that's, that's a, a confession. It's saying, Lord, you're right and I'm wrong. I'm a sinner, and I know that. And I want your forgiveness. We call that a repentant attitude. Too many, too many people are, are proud and arrogant in themselves, and they don't really want what God's offering. Saving faith is a willingness to receive. Secondly, saving faith is a trusting faith. A trusting faith. It's a willing faith and it's a trusting faith. True saving faith trusts God. The writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 11.1 1 said, Now faith is a substance, hypostasis, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What does he mean? Hypostasis means the substance of something, the foundation of it, that which is trusted. We trust God for all that he's already done, which moves us to trust God for what he will do. Listen to me very carefully, those online watching today. Jesus Christ came to this earth literally. He left heaven and took on a human body, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, was abused and rejected by his own, his own people, Falsely accused, hung on a cross, and he died a literal death to pay for your sin and mine. Listen to me, that's substance. That's substance. That's reality. Three days later, he came out of the grave. You ready for this newsflash? He's the only one to ever do that. Nobody else has ever done it. The fact that he rose from the grave validates who he is. All of his messages about himself, everything the Bible says, the prophecies, all validated because he came out of the grave. You say, do we really know that? About 500 people saw him at one time. You can't get two people to agree on anything, let alone 500, okay? 500 people saw him at one time. Listen, the facts are, the facts are, Jesus is exactly who he said he is. So to be saved, I'm willing to receive what he said about me and what he offers, and I trust him. I put my faith in him. I trust God. August 13th, 1972, a lady shared the gospel with me. I didn't know much about the Bible. I had never really read it much. The man, the Holy Spirit, poked me right in the chest and said, that's you, buddy. That's you. You're lost. You're a sinner. I knew it. I didn't know much, but I knew that. So I willingly wanted what God offered. I trusted him. I didn't know at the moment all that he did for me because I didn't know much about the Bible. But he saved me. And then the rest of my life, the more I study what he did for me, the more amazing it is that he did all that. And he did it when I didn't even know it.
The application's pretty clear. Salvation is an individual event. It's not corporate. You don't come to church and sit in a church service and just get saved because you're here. And you don't get saved because your mom and dad's saved. You don't get saved because of anybody else or what you do. It is because Jesus on that day hung on the cross and brought righteousness to you and me. And you can have it if you trust him. The question is, are you willing? Most people are not willing. The thing that I cannot get past with most people that I share the gospel with is they won't deal with their sin. In fact, there are people who will not listen to this ministry, who won't watch any more videos, because in a sermon I said, all men are sinners, and they turned us off. And they won't watch anymore because they're offended at the fact that I said they're a sinner. Well, God said it before I said it. The only reason I'm saying it is because God said it. And in your heart of hearts, you know that it's true. So are you willing to receive Christ? Are you willing to trust him? Now, the expanse of God's grace, who, who does it apply to? And of course, here's that famous verse in Romans 3.23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short, or in the King James, come short of the glory of God. In this verse, God's righteousness is really rephrased in the phrase of glory, but it's the same thing. God's righteousness is connected to his glory. His glory is connected to his righteousness. His glory is about who he is. And what the Bible clearly says and what Paul says here in one verse is this, all have sinned. All of us have come short of the righteousness required to have a relationship with God. And that statement is the one most people can't get over. And it really is where we must begin. Now you say, well, pastor, are we really, are we really that bad? Are we really sinners? I'm going to prove it to you in one, in one command. You say, well, there's 10. I don't need 10. I need one. And I'm going to show you that what that verse says is true about every human being who walks on the face of the planet. In Exodus 20, verse 3, the first commandment, God said, you shall have no other gods before me, period. It's a short one. It's an easy one. God said, hey, here's the Ten Commandments. Let's start with this one. No other gods before me. Now, why would God say that? Because he's the only one there is. There is no other living God. Listen to me. There are hundreds and hundreds and maybe a couple of thousand, 3,000 religions in the world. I forget how many. I looked it up one time. And of all those religions that are in the world, there's one that's right. And it's the gospel. That's it. There's one that's right. You say, wow, pastor, that's pretty exclusive. Yep. Absolutely. Second law of philosophy, and this has nothing to do with the Bible, just to make you smarter. Listen. Second law of philosophy says two opposing views that are opposite to one another cannot both be right at the same time. One of them's wrong and one of them's right. So we can say, here's how you get to heaven. And this person can say, here's how you get to heaven. Here's a person, here's how you get to heaven. Here's how you get to heaven. Here's how you get to heaven. They aren't all right. There's only one right. It's Jesus Christ. God said, don't have any other gods in front of me. Don't have any other gods before you. He said, well, what about the New Testament? You know, that's Old Testament stuff. Okay, I'll help you. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37, listen to this. 
a lawyer came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment of them all? Now the lawyers would ask that because they had a habit of putting all the laws of God in order. This law is number one. This one's number, you know, whatever the last number was. This one we can do because it don't really matter much, but this number one up here, we can't, we can't break that one. So the lawyer says to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment of them all? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Here's how I know we're all sinners. Here's how I know Romans 3.23 is right. None of us have ever done that. None of us have ever loved God completely. It's impossible in our humanity. You know why? Because we love us too much. That's it. We like us more than we like anybody. That's what's eaten up in the world today. Everybody's about himself. Everything's about them. And God said, no, it's about me. It ain't about you. Love me more than you love yourself. Love me more than you love anything else in the world. Don't have any other gods in front of me. But in the world today, we put self ahead of God. We put things ahead of God. We put our will ahead of God. So we're all sinners, get it? We're all, now we could do the other nine if you want to. It'll just make you feel worse. But we start with the first one and we've all failed in the very first commandment of loving God like he deserves to be loved, of obeying him and trusting him. So we are all sinners. So that brings us to the second thing Jesus did for us on the cross. He brought, he brought justification. Look at verses 24 uh, and 25. Being justified freely. Well, that's a great phrase. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now we don't have any kind of time to deal with all of that in depth, but think about this for just a minute. Justification is a legal term. Not only did Jesus bring righteousness to impart to us when we get saved, to give us the righteousness we need. But he brought justification. You know why? Because our sin is a legal issue. We've broken God's laws. And when you break the law, there's a penalty. And so what Jesus did is he justified us. He made us, he made us right instead of wrong. Sometimes someone will do something and they go to court and the court will decide they were justified in their actions. What's the court saying when they, when they do that? that? That person's actions were justified. They're saying they did right. They're saying they didn't do wrong. Well, we're all unjustified because we're all sinners. So what does God do? He loves us and he wants us to be with him forever. So he sent Jesus who died on the cross to justify us, to make us, to make us innocent before God. Now, how did he do that? Because he shed his blood on the cross and he paid the penalty for our sin, which is the last one, redemption. And we'll talk about that in just a second. He, we can be justified in Christ. Now, how do you get it? Again, by faith. And it's free. It's free. I suspect if the Bible said, here's what you got to do to get in heaven. Three trips around the world, stand on your head, you know, do, do this great thing. There'd be people knocking themselves out trying to do it. Why? Because then they feel like they earned something. You know, man, I, you know, I, did, I did the thing, and so now I'm going to heaven. God said, nah, 
How about this? It's free. You can have it. You can have it. You know why it's free? Because you and I can't possibly earn it. So God just gives it to us for free. Justifies us. Paid the, paid the penalty for our sin. Listen, God's grace is his unmerited favor. Unmerited simply means you can't earn it. You can't do anything to get it. Now let's think about the third thing very quickly. If we're going to be justified, if the, if the penalty for our sin has been, pay, been paid, how did that happen? Through redemption. God loves and desires to save all men. Uh, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and 2 Peter 3, 9, God says he would have all men to be saved. God desires all men and women to be saved. He so desires us to be saved, he made the way. He made it clear. He made it possible, and it's free, so we don't have to earn it. How did that happen? Because Jesus died on the cross on Good Friday. Because Jesus hung on the cross, and he gave himself for us. Now, here's how, here's how redemption works. The uh, apolutrosis is the word here for propitiation. And what it means is a satisfaction of a debt. It means a ransom has been paid. It means there was a penalty, and Jesus paid it so that we don't have to pay it. It's like paying a ransom. It's like paying a, paying a fee. There are songs we sing that it's paid in full. That I don't owe anything because on my account, Jesus paid for my sins. You see, when Jesus hung on the cross on Good Friday, he took the sin that's yours and mine, and, it, and he took it for his own. He was innocent of any wrongdoing declared by man and God, and yet he took our sin. And when he took our sin, God the Father looked away from him. First time ever in eternity, there was a rift between God the Father and God the Son because the Father could not look on the Son who had become sin for us. And in the darkness of those hours, as Jesus hung on the cross, listen, he bore on himself our eternity of suffering for our sins. He took it and then died. And that legal transaction happened in that the wages of sin is death and Jesus died. And he paid the penalty. He paid the price. The word propitiation is a great word. Not only does it mean to, to, to pay a, a, a penalty or to pay a fine or to pay a, a ransom, but it also is used in the, in the Old Testament hilasterion, uh, which means the, the mercy seat. In the picture of that we find in the Old Testament, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies not a lot of neat things to read about in Leviticus and, and whatnot, but you could go over and read that, and there's a beautiful picture in there. The high priest would go into the temple once a year and go into the Holy of Holies, and he would put sprinkling of blood over, over the Ark of the Covenant where there was the cover on there with the cherubims, and, the, and, it was, and they called it the mercy seat. You know why? Because that blood covered the sin of the people for the next year until he come back in and did it again. You understand that Jesus is our mercy seat? Jesus shed his blood. He's where we go to get mercy. He's where we go to get forgiveness. And here's the best part. Every year, the high priest had to go back in there and offer another sacrifice every year. Why? Because the blood of animals couldn't take away sin, just covered it. Remember it said here that God's forbearance against sin that had been committed doesn't mean God was overlooking it, but he was waiting because the, the lamb of God was coming. And then when Jesus died on the cross, then he could forgive sin. It wasn't just forbearance. It wasn't just being passed over every year because of the blood of an animal. 
When Jesus came, it was taken off the books, wiped out. So our mercy see is Jesus Christ, which is pictured in this passage here. I'm going to close with this. What was the purpose of Jesus' death? Look at verse 26. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The purpose of Jesus' coming and Good Friday was to save us, to make available salvation to the world. The resurrection that we're going to talk about next Sunday was the, was the glory part of it. It was the victory part of it. But the work was done on the cross. You understand that? The righteousness of God, the justification, the redemption, all done on the cross. Justification and redemption originates in grace. Why did God come up with such a magnificent process of sacrifice, of redeeming the lost? Because he wants to. Because he loves us. That's beyond human comprehension, isn't it? That's just beyond. It originates in grace. It's finished by the work of Jesus on the cross. And finally, it is received by faith. Faith that receives and faith that trusts. Good Friday was good for us. Tough day for Jesus. Tough day for him. Matter of fact, in the garden, before they arrested him, he said, Lord, Father, if there's any other way, there's a way this cup can be taken away. Now's the time. What was Jesus saying? Was he saying he didn't want to do it? No. No, he'd come here to do it. He wasn't, he wasn't going to walk away from it. What he was saying is, this is ugly. And, he, and, and it repulsed him that he was going to take sin. And he asked the Father, is there any other way to save them than me doing this? And the answer, of course, from the Father was, no, there's no other way. And Jesus went to the cross. Good Friday for us. If you walk away from Jesus or you live your life and you never come to him, you're going to waste, waste the opportunity of, of all eternity. Man, if you're here this morning or you're watching online, and I know many do, or you're watching the video later, and you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to do that right now. Right now. Above everything else you could do in life, you need to do it today. That Jesus who died for you on the cross, on that Good Friday, who did all this, brought us his righteousness, his justification, redemption. If you reject him, he's going to be your judge. You don't want to face him that way. You want to face him now with mercy and grace. Would you pray? Would you willingly, of your own heart, confess your sin to God today, put your faith in Jesus and ask him to save you? Would you do that right now? Let's pray. God, how can we even understand what you did? 
Lord, I know there are people today who are under the hearing of your word and will be as they watch this video. There are those watching online right now, wherever they might be. Lord, they need, they, need, they need Christ. They need to pray. Maybe there's somebody in this room right now, Lord, and they've been religious all their life. Maybe they come to church because their family comes. Maybe there's some other reason. God, they've never personally, willingly asked you to forgive their sin. They've never trusted you by faith themselves, asking you, Lord, trusting what you did on the cross. Right now is the time they could do that, Lord. Right now in this moment, Lord, they could just pray and confess their sin. God, I'm a sinner and I know it. Forgive me, save me, God. I want what you're offering. I want to be forgiven. I want you to be the God of my life. Bless this invitation in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing. If I can pray with you or help you, I'll be down front.